Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us here on Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Matt Mitchell, the running editor at Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. All right, so after a few months in the field, I had Off the Couch's reporter at large, Leah Yingling, back on the show to catch me up on how she rounded out her summer after a top 10 finish at Western States in June. We talked about her experience taking in the scene at UTMB this year and why it's an event worth going to regardless of whether or not you're racing before recapping her run at the inaugural World Mountain and Trail Running Championships, which were held in Chiang Mai, Thailand a couple of weeks ago. For fans of the competitive side of trail running, I think this should be a really fun episode. I just want to say that if you're enjoying listening to the conversations I've been having on this show and find yourself wanting to get more into trail running, I'd encourage you to sign up for a Blister membership so you can send us an email and get my personal recommendations to help you find the right pair of running shoes. Check out the link in the show notes for more info on that, as well as all the other benefits becoming a Blister member gets you. And do us a favor by leaving a rating or review while you're at it. Little things like that go a long way in supporting the show. Okay, let's get right into my conversation with Leah Yingling. Leah, thanks for uh, coming back on the show. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me, Matt. Yeah, so you recently got back from representing the U.S. at the Trail World Champs in Thailand, which is something I definitely want to hit on in detail uh, in this conversation. But I thought first we would back up a little bit and kind of pick up where we left left off. I think you came on a few weeks after running Western States, and we we chatted about that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but catch me up on how the rest of your summer played out. Yeah, that's a fun question. So I think going into the summer, I had lofty intentions of running Western States and then following that up with UTMB. Um, but I had a lot of people kind of advising me a little bit against that going into Western States because they told me when the going got tough during Western States, it'd be very easy for me to get a little bit complacent knowing that I had a, another race that I could you know, use my fitness towards. So going into Western States, I was like, okay, I probably shouldn't do UTMB, but I'll keep it on the calendar. Um, so I did not do UTMB, but I had still intended to go out there. So after Western States, I think I took about 10 weeks actually pretty down, um, which I think I needed mentally and physically. Um, I think I probably ran about half of those, those days and just wanted to get my body back in kind of a good state and my mind in a good state as well. Um, so we did go over to UTMB, which was a highlight of my summer of training. Um, I think I made an Instagram post while we were over there that said, um, I highly recommend uh, not running a race when everybody is running a race. And I still stand by that statement. I had so much fun at UTMB this year, just running around and running portions of the course, catching up with a bunch of friends and having very low stress compared to all the other athletes that were out there racing. Um, So I had an absolute blast just following the races all week and actually getting probably to see about 50 miles of the UTMB course, um, which was awesome because I think I do want to do that someday. So it's nice to get a little preview um, while we were out there. Are you pretty good about like taking adequate time off of like races? Yeah. Yeah. I think um, this year I had raced a lot going into Western States, like almost every single month and Western States took a lot out of me. And I, I actually had like a small acute injury coming out of Western States. I think I tore my, a portion of my calf actually, which I ended up running with you on the section where I don't think it was feeling too hot. Um, so I, all things considered, I think that injury forced me to take more substantial time off than I would have otherwise. But I like to take after a hundred, especially at least two full weeks off. Um, and right now I'm about three or four days removed from a 50 miler. So I'll probably take this entire week off and then get back into things next week. But yeah, I really like that downtime. I think it refreshes me physically and mentally. And sometimes it's a little frustrating trying to get back into shape, but it happens fast enough. And I think I just consider longevity that whole time when I'm taking a longer break. It's, you know, taking that time off is just doing future Leah a favor. Yeah. So like getting back into running after a break like that, is it kind of intuitive? I know you mentioned like taking two weeks off is kind of like the minimum, but then like, how do you kind of get things rolling again? Yeah, I am. I'm not a super high mileage runner to begin with. So I think 
on my Utah terrain here, a pretty average like base week for me is somewhere around like 50 miles with 10 to 12,000 feet of vert. Um, so that's usually where I get back to and I kind of stay there for a little bit and I won't incorporate workouts back in until I'm feeling inspired to do a workout. So I think this year, my, my coach is Megan Roach and in the probably month or so after Western States, maybe about five weeks afterwards, we started on my calendar having some workouts incorporated and like mentally and physically, I just could not and did not want to do them. So I think that was a sign for me of like, hey, let's just continue base building because you're not ready to do a workout yet. So I think really respecting those feelings that you have um, does a lot for you. And that's something I kind of check in with very often when I'm building back. So I think for me, a lot of my summer then, like pretty much all of August and September was right around that like 50 miles a week, 10,000 feet of vert. And I didn't really know what was on my calendar for the rest of the winter or fall, as we'll probably chat a little bit more about. Um, so I just wanted to be like ready enough if something came on my radar. Cool. Um, let's talk a little bit more about UTMB. Because I, I have also heard that it's like, it's the thing to do is to go over there and like not have to race because it <laughs> takes all the stress out of it. And you can kind of just like, I've heard it compared to like summer camp for adults. Oh, yeah. um, what was like, what was like a day like for you there um, as like, you know, essentially on vacation? Oh, yeah. So we ended up spending the first five or so days out in Cormier and then transferring over to Chamonix for the last five or so days of the trip once the races really started to get going. Um, and initially, our intentions were my husband, Mike, was going to run TDS, which starts in Cormier. So we were going to stay there until that race started um, and then move over. And actually, I think if we go back in future years, we would do things very similarly because the energy in Cormier versus Chamonix is entirely different. And Cormier is just very relaxed. And I think a lot of people have that same mindset. I think some mutual friend of ours, the Gaylords, go out there and host their own little version of soft version of UTMB and just get all their friends friends together out there and take them out on runs. Um, and it very much felt like summer camp. We were doing like a different run every single day, seeing a portion of the course um, and not just doing a run with people, but engaging with them afterwards, like having a meal, having polenta, having wine. Um, and just enjoying ourselves and like just having a blast and having very much a vacation. Um, so that's what those first many days felt like. But then I would say once we transitioned over to Chamonix, it was oh, like, well, it was entirely different. It was wild. The energy was so high and we were crewing some friends out there. So I just felt like we flipped a complete switch and it was went from like a relaxation period to complete like go, go, go the second we hit Chamonix, which I don't think I would do it any other way. It was fun to have the juxtaposition of both of those experiences. Yeah, I know like the Gaylords, they have everything just like dialed yes. uh, from what <laughs> I hear. Uh, so I think, you know, in coming years, I got to I gotta go out and experience that. What'd you do like during UTMB? Were you pacing or crewing anyone? Mm -hmm. um, I should say like the main race at UTMB, the, the longest distance. Right. So that actually, there's some context. We were crewing people, um, Hannah, we were helping um, two of our friends, Alex and Grace, crew Hannah Allgood in CCC, which then led us directly into UTMB because there's about a 12-hour time difference of when those races start. So pretty much when CCC finishes or when the lead women were finishing is roughly the time when like UTMB is starting. So we kind of rolled right in from CCC crewing of bopping around and I think being at three aid stations or so um, crewing that right into UTMB when we were crewing Jimmy Elam. Um, so that was our main, the main reason we were going to UTMB that this year was to help with Jimmy's race. Um, and we ended up crewing him at, I think, Triant and Valorcine. Um, and we kind of split it amongst a few people. But it was really cool because we had had that experience of crewing CCC, knowing where these aid stations were, knowing how the runners were going to enter and exit, and just knowing what to expect. Um, so at a lot of the points on the course, uh, Mike and I would go up and run up the course in the opposite direction to try to catch the runners coming into the aid station. Um, and then ideally crew our runner then down at the aid station. And I, it was in such an intense race to watch. I think everybody races UTMB very differently. There's a lot of people who go really aggressive off the front. Um, and then a lot of people who work their way up all day. So it was really fun to see how those different races played out 
for example, somebody like Jim Walmsley, who went aggressive off the front and then kind of fell back a little bit during the day and had some rough periods, was kind of fun to then compare and contrast to our friend Jimmy, who, you know, started pretty far um, in the mid pack and then worked his way up to, I think it was 14th by the end of the day. Um, so just really cool seeing how all the different styles of how people race out there. And I think it teaches you a lot for future racing at UTMB. Is crewing for a race like that, like absolute mayhem? I mean, it's like what, how many runners are in UTMB, like 5,000 or something? Yeah, there's a ton. Um, and I think the way that they um, help prevent mayhem is by having only a person or two allowed in the aid station tent at a time. Um, so I think for our crew, actually, like I was never the person in the aid station tent. So I was kind of just on the outskirts and, you know, feeding information as necessary and whatnot. Um, but it gets stressful in there because I think in the States where you, I mean, you saw at Western States this year, like we were a pit stop and it was tons of people all like attacking me at once with various things. Um, at UTMB, it's a lot more dependent on one person doing all of those things. So I think it's pretty stressful for that one person who needs to make sure that they're doing everything right for their runner in that moment. Um, and there's a lot of things that they need because there's often a decent amount of time between crude aid stations there. Yeah. I just love how they call like the aid stations like life bases. Yeah. <laughs> it makes it sound like like so aggressive. <laughs> it's so aggressive. I think it's also like it's really easy because there's so much required gear at UTMB. Um and like so much is going on and there's not as many people as you're used to having in these aid stations for crew. It's really easy to forget things. So I think in our case with Jimmy, um, you know, we were giving him an extra bottle at one of the aid stations because we knew it was gonna be a hot section. But you know, he had he ended up forgetting it in the aid station because he had so much other required gear on him. He thought he had it. So I think it's really easy to make little mistakes like that um, when the environment is so hyped up and uh, yeah, just a little bit more stressful than you're used to. Did anything surprise you about um, how that race played out both on the men's and women's side? Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, there's a couple things that were just impressive to me. One of which was Zach Miller's race. Um, he was just it was typical Zach Miller, but like I, he usually goes for it in races and sometimes that works out and sometimes it doesn't. Um, and it's really interesting to see how that plays out for him over a hundred miles because, you know, taking risks in hundred miles affects you a lot more later on than it would in a shorter race. Like you can get a, away with a lot more risks in shorter races and he's been able to do that. But it was interesting to see how that played out for him long-term in this race. And he held on so much more than I ever would have imagined he would be able to, which was just so impressive. And I think he's having a phenomenal year and it just goes to show what a healthy, uh, well-trained Zach Miller can look like at a hundred miles. Uh, so his race was amazing for me to watch. And then on the women's side, just like the battle between Katie Scheid and Marianne Hogan was a fun one because I think they both have a little bit different skill sets and seeing how like in and out of each aid station, like who was when the lead was changing and whatnot, it was different each time. And, uh, Marianne ended up with an injury that kind of impeded her progress a little bit later on. But I would have loved to see just a fully healthy Marianne compete with Katie in the later stages of that race because I think they would have been going at it for a while. Yeah, so that was fun. And then my final one was uh, Tyler Green was super impressive. He took like, I think an hour long nap at Triant, which is well into the race. And he bounced back and I, th I he still finished like top 50 or top 40 or something. Um, and I, so I saw him come into that aid station and I was pretty sure he was going to DNF. And I think he probably thought similarly, but he took an hour long nap and bounced back and got right back out there. So I think anybody that can do that is amazing and super impressive in my books. So seeing that play out successfully for him was uh, pretty awesome to see. I feel like ultra running is just like dying a thousand deaths. And I think like... it is. <laughs> Katie's race was really impressive. Like I tried to watch as much as I could from the live stream, which I feel like just gets like better and better every mm -hmm. year. Um, but it'll be really exciting to see what she does next year. Cause I think she, I saw something that she's thinking about maybe running Western States. She is. She is confirmed and she's really? going to be there. Yeah. So I think it's going to be really exciting. I think I've already uh, seen some of her training on Strava and I think she's already transitioning a little bit more to the flatter, faster stuff these days. So it's going to be really cool to see her um, on, on the state's soil. So did your experience kind of make you want to 
run UTMB next year, the year after. I guess it's like a similar conundrum, right? Because it's like you kind of have to pick between Western states or UTMB. I guess you could do both, but... Exactly. uh, It's tough because UTMB is getting harder and harder to get into, and it's making me less and less inclined to want to do it because they're making it tricky to get into and I don't want to go out of my way to get into it. So for example, with my current race schedule, as I kind of have it planned next year, I would have to get top three at Western States to get into UTMB. And I don't think that's the exact way that I would want to go about doing that. Because also when I do UTMB, I want to do something similar to what um, Caitlin Gerben did this year, which was like make her sole focus UTMB. Um, And I think that's when I would see the best success at UTMB is if I catered my whole year and my whole summer to more like mountain objectives. So yes, I want to end up at UTMB one of these years. And maybe if I do go next year, it'll be one of the shorter races or maybe it will be UTMB, who knows. But I think I would want to put my best foot forward there rather than stacking up too many races beforehand leading into it. I feel like a race like UTMB too, like it ages well, you know, because it mm-hmm. is like relatively lower intensity for the most part than a race like Western States. Exactly. So you, you have plenty of time. I know. I got many years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like speaking of kind of focusing all of your attention on something like, what do you think about Jim's, Jim's race? Like there was so much marketing and yeah. like attention focused on like his like move to Europe and mm-hmm. It's like super impressive, like in order and like I'm I'm jealous that he's able to <laughs> to kind of dedicate so much time and uh, a chunk out of his life to to doing as best he can at that race. Um, where do you think he kind of like, I don't know, where did the race fall apart for him? Yeah, I think there was a long descent um, after the Grand Col Frey, I want to say, um, that he knew was his strength. And I think that's when he ended up um, trying to drop his competitors. And I think that ended up kind of stinging him a little bit in the end. I think he pushed it a little too early, too soon. Um, But I think to his advantage, though, that's a section that was very runnable, very fast. And he knew that's where he could gap a lot of people and maybe make a move that broke open the race. Um, So I think that was probably what did him in a little bit there. And it was impressive to see him hang on the way he did uh, because I mean, he was crawling up some of those late sections. So I think like a past gym might've thrown in the towel, but I think this was a very determined gym who had put in intense, intense training all summer, really dedicated training. So it was great to see him get us a, a good finish, but you know, that wasn't exactly what he came for was a finish like that. So yeah, I think if you could race it a smidge smarter and maybe not make as aggressive moves as early, we'd see a little bit more success for him. But like you look at Katie Scheid's race and she raced aggressive from the gun under course record pace, like faster than Courtney had done last year. And like she held on for a really solid race. So I think there's a lot of different ways you can approach it. It's just unfortunate that it kind of blew up on Jim a little earlier than I'm sure he was anticipating. Yeah. And he's talked about like this being a a multi-year project too. So Mm -hmm. hopefully he'll have another crack at it. He's been like on a tear ever since. I know. Yeah. And I saw he just uh, posted on social media, I think it was today or yesterday, about um, getting excited about road racing again and maybe going after comrades or the 100K world record. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that would also be very cool to see Jim take another stab at those things. I think he has to run comrades. Like, I know. <laughs> he's got to. I would. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'd be so cool. Um, all right. Before we move off of UTMB, uh, let's talk a little bit about like Killian, the GOAT. Mm. His year was absurd. Just absurd. And I think um, there were some articles published this summer about his training and whatnot. And I mean, it's tough to extrapolate that training and apply it to anybody else because Killian is so special and he's a different breed. And I think what he does is just exceptions to all the rules. Uh, And he just continues to impress. And you just can't ever count Killian out, even if he's already you know, run hard rock that summer or done X, Y, and Z. He's always coming or got COVID, you know, a week of the race, two weeks before the race. He's just unstoppable and continues to impress. So yeah, I, there's no words. (laughs) How deep did you dive into, uh, yeah, his like training that he released? Uh, not a ton. Um, enough to know that it's pretty wild training. Um, and he does a lot of like different combinations of training, but also the fact that he's doing less training this year than he 
pretty much ever has. And to see him have such great success, I think speaks to his longevity in the sport as well. And just like the years of miles, the years of mountain training that he's done. It's not like it's not like anybody can just pick up the training that he put out there and be successful. It's because he has, you know, a full history of training uh, that's established already that he's building on. Do you think like people understand that though? I feel like so many people are going to try and mimic what he's doing and it's like such a bad idea. I know. I actually think um, Adam Peterman used some of his workouts before, uh, the world champs in Thailand. So I was like, well, if anyone, maybe it's Adam. Peterman, um, yeah. yeah. That's a good point. All right. Well, that's a natural segue. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about the trail world championships. Can you give me like an idea of how that works? I guess like I, yeah. I, I know that this is the inaugural year for it, I believe, because it used to be like a bunch of different kind of world championship races and now it's kind of consolidated. Correct. So this is the first year where they combined um, the mountain and the trail running world championships. Um, so in the past, you're right, there used to be like an up and down race, um, the classic race is what they call it, I believe, and then an uphill race. And then um, those would be separate. And then there is uh, the 40K distance and then the 80K distance. And those are called like 40K trail and 80K trail. Um, and those would also be in separate places and with different teams, obviously. This was the first year that they combined all four events and made it into like a multi, multi-day multi series. And uh, we brought in the US, um, I'm not sure how many athletes, but for example, for the ADK team, we were allowed to have five spots for women, five spots for men, um, same for the 40K. And I think it was probably four and four for the um, classic and the uphill race. And then also the, the junior race, which was the U20, race where they did uh, a shorter course as well. So we had a ton of athletes. I think there was about 40 countries represented. And uh, yeah, we, I chatted a lot about pros and cons with some of the other athletes who have done these races before. Um, some of the pros that I would say are the fact that it's giving exposure, kind of this like cross exposure of sorts. So in the past, you know, the ADK runners wouldn't really have any insight into what this vertical race looks like or what the classic race looks like. Same could be said for um, the vertical race witnessing an ADK trail race. For example, uh, Lauren Gregory, who is one of the athletes on the uphill team, she's an NCAA uh, college athlete at University of Arkansas. And I think she ended up getting 12th place in the uphill race. And she was out on the course cheering in the ADK on Saturday. And she was saying like she just wanted to be out there because she's never seen an ultra before. Oh, cool. And yeah, it was really cool to see, like I was going uphill on a section and there she was. And I'm probably going, you know, a 10th of the pace that she was going uphill in the vertical race, but yeah, she's out there cheering and it's just an entirely different type of race experience. So that's really cool that athletes who don't specialize in one of these distances can see. So I definitely see that as a pro. A con um, would be the fact that we're going to need larger size cities, I would say, to host these events because it's a lot of people in like smaller villages, like I think the 2018 Penigalusa uh, 80K trail race, that was in, took place in a smaller town that I don't think had the bandwidth to host many more than probably just the 80K teams from the countries. So I think you would end up excluding some of these smaller, less accessible villages um, and areas because of just the vast number of people that we'll have. So that, those are just like examples of a pro and a con. And I know that there's probably lots of conversations across the board. I would say like another example could be less bonding within your immediate like 80K trail team because there's so many people there and you're kind of dispersed amongst the bunch. Um, you get less one-on-one -on -one time with your actual team. Um, but you also get to know a lot of the other athletes in the other disciplines, which is pretty cool. So when did this opportunity um, kind of pop on your radar? Yeah, this is interesting because um, it popped on other people's radars at different times. The way you can get in onto the ADK team, for example, is by getting this past year is getting first or second place at Broken Arrow, which is 50K-ish, or there's three resume spots for the team. And applications were due by the end of September, roughly. I think like September 21st, and then the team was informed by like September 29th or something. So if you're doing the math, that is five weeks before the race is when the team was informed. So nice advantage for people who qualified in June at Broken Arrow because that gives them 
four-ish, four and a half months to get ready for this. Um, less nice for those of us who are resume uh, submissions because that gives you five weeks to be ready for this. So I had known that this was happening um, probably for most of this year. And I was kind of had my eyes set on it after Western States and I didn't do UTMB. And I was like, well, I want to do one more thing this fall, fall and winter. And I wanted it to be something a little bit more mountainous. So I put my name in the hat. I felt like I had a 50-50 shot of making the team. I felt like they looked at your race results, I think from 2021 and 2022. So I felt like I had a pretty substantial resume that could be competitive for this. Um, so I figured I'd give it a shot and kind of train as if I'd make the team. And if I didn't make the team, give myself another alternative. Who decides the spots? Like, is it USATF? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we have a USATF board who's comprised of a variety of people, but people like Anita Ortiz, uh, Max King, Richard Bolt, Nancy Hobbs, and a few others. So I think a lot of them have run pretty deep with um, ATRA and USATF. Um, and they've got some strong voices who have been in it for a while um, making decisions for the team. So they, I, th- I believe they uh, make the decisions for the team. Was it kind of hard to train for a race that like you didn't know you were necessarily going to run? Like I, I feel like I've heard a lot of folks that are kind of on the wait list for um, like Western states and mm-hmm. like they get into the race like the day of and they kind of just like show up. Yes. It's so harrowing. Yeah. It's tough because if anybody is anything like me, I need a goal to be motivated, especially coming off of a big effort like Western States. Uh, It was really easy to not be motivated for much of anything. So for me, I just was like, okay, train, just have a base ready. Like I, there was nothing inspiring me to do any workouts until I had something substantial on the calendar. And I think the day I found out about the race, I was, it was right before I had started a run and I wasn't planning on doing a workout that day because I hadn't done any workouts for probably a solid three months. And I was like, well, let's push this uphill and see where I'm at and slightly painful, but I was like, okay, good starting point. Good starting point. I've got five weeks. Let's do this. Yeah. It's like amazing what you can do in five weeks though. Yeah. I was actually quite impressed. Like I, um, I put together three or four good weeks of training with some really good workouts and like a workout that put me like it was a workout I had done before Western States. And I ran it pretty much identical to how I did that workout before Western States, which was funny because I hadn't done any speed in like since May. So that was really nice because then I was like, okay, this mountain strength actually does translate to some speed and that's nice. So yeah, different, different styles of training for sure for the races I've done this year, but um, yeah, not too bad. I think that also speaks to giving myself sufficient recovery. And that's why I think that that is really, really important after big efforts. What was the uh, like profile of the 80K race like? Because I, I think it's what, 80K is like 45 miles, something like that? Yeah, it was um, it was going back and forth. So it was, it was, oh man, it was wild. So going into the race, we did not know much about the course, number one. Um, we didn't get a GPX file until about like two weeks out. And then at that point, it was roughly, let's say, 50 miles and probably 16,500 feet is what we were told. And then at, actually at that point, all we had was like pictures of what the course was going to be. Oh, so man. that's it, like no GPX. And then we finally got a, I believe, a GPX or something, or maybe somebody on our team, I think Adam Mary or somebody made the route on Strava as best they could based on the pictures. So then at that point we had like a rough idea as to what the course was going to be. And then I think Harry Jones who runs, um, he ran for UK. He lives there and trains. So we were going off of like his Strava runs that he's done there and the pictures that he has to try to get an idea of what the train was going to look like. Um, So we were really piecemealing. Like, are we started this email thread about two or three weeks out? That was just like, trail recon, race recon, what are we getting ourselves into? What are the rules? Like everything with the race organization was actually like quite disorganized about four weeks out. I think they were just trying to get things straight themselves and was pretty uh, poor at communicating with the US team as to like what the course is going to be, what the course support was going to be, all these things. Um, So it was very, very tough to even start like catering a race plan because we had just such limited details. Uh, yeah, that was tricky. Sounds like an absolute mission. It was. <laughs> yeah. And also like just thinking about GPS, like running in a jungle, like you can't 
sometimes it's hard to trust that information too. Exactly. And um, one of the first course profiles we were given, we were given a couple too, which was a little confusing. So I think it was like a day or two before the race, um, me and Caitlin Gerben were just relaxing and swimming and having a good time. And then I had told her I was planning like race planning right beforehand. And I was like, did you see there's this 10 mile section with 4,000 feet and there's, there's no support out there. She's like, no, I swear there's support. She's like, I saw this race profile that says there's a water drop. I was like, I'm pretty sure there's not a water drop. Uh, and then we, after we got out of the pool, we started comparing and contrasting which maps and profiles we were looking at. And turns out there was an updated version. But yeah, in one of our early versions, there was going to be a section like without support out there. So a lot of just like updated communication along the way. And I think it left a lot of us a little bit uneasy going into the race because we just, I think the day before the race, we're like, this is just going to be a wild adventure and going to be a complete surprise. So at any rate, we felt like everybody was in the same boat. Like nobody knew exactly what they were getting themselves into. Nobody could really train in a 85 degree, hundred percent humidity environment. Like everybody had the same disadvantages. So at least it felt like it was a pretty even playing field coming into it. I want to hear kind of your overall impressions of, of Thailand. Of oh. Chiang Mai in particular. Yeah, it, Thailand was amazing. Um, such such a great experience. The culture, everybody was so friendly there. Uh, the culture was amazing. The temples were just absolutely beautiful. We spent a day in Old City in Chiang Mai. Go, that you can go into like their town center where there's a bunch of different temples. Um, just an incredible experience to be able to go into a variety of these. Just the history behind them. Um, just the street vendors, the restaurants, the children, the whole town was just there for the event. Like they were so supportive. Um, I, one of my favorite experiences though, were the small villages um, that we'd go into as our, like there was a crew aid station in one of the villages, but then there was also one kind of on the outskirts that our crew couldn't access, but it was just the village support around the event. So all, a lot of the people in the village were wearing these like amazing Thailand shirts and they were waving flags. And these kids would be in the town from the second the first runners came up into town, which was probably 7.30 in the morning, waving their flag till the last runners were through there at the end of the day. Like these kids by the end of the day were just like waving. <laughs> and it looks like they were just being forced to do it probably. But they were so energetic. That was cool to see. And I think another part was just this number of citizen volunteers. A lot of what I said prior to this was just like how it felt kind of disorganized going into it. The day of the race though, it was so impressive. It was flawlessly marked, like citizen volunteers everywhere on the course at any tricky intersection or just like military personnel laying in a hammock in a tree somewhere on course, kind of camouflage, just like out there and present. It was incredible. Like definitely blew my socks off, was not expecting it to be as well run as it was. Um, and I was just telling people after the race who didn't run it, I was like, you need to do this course. It is so cool. Ours was comprised of three different loops um, with three different climbs and really different environments and terrain. So yeah, just in general, Thailand seemed so receptive of the race and the culture was so welcoming. And I think it was just a full community event, which was amazing to see. Yeah, it was it was really awesome um, to see like pictures uh, from like the opening ceremonies and all that stuff. Uh, I know Mike went with you, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think, I don't know if you've been able to read it, but Mike and Corinne worked on this photo journal of um, each day of the world champs. So the first couple days was just us getting our bearings and going up to the one village and doing a short run. And then we did a cooking class, uh, a five, five course, five hour long cooking class, I think two days before the race. And it involved going to the, sh the market, getting all the ingredients for the meals we were going to make, uh, coming back to this woman's kitchen. And there was eight of us that did it and just cooking you know, five course meal with her, which was just so immersive and one of the highlights of the trip, but it was also five hours on your feet two days before a race. So like by the end of it, me and Jeff Colt were like, we are so done right now. <laughs> um, oh man. But yeah, so Mike and Corinne put together a really cool photo journal of all, all the days of the race. And I just think it really captures the emotion and the energy that was out there, um, whether it was in a race or just like, you know, countryside. I feel like Mike is now a preeminent race photographer uh, in the trail world, which I love. Yeah. Uh, go check out his Instagram. Uh, it's at shit in the woods. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's got some some great content of not just uh, world champs, but you know Western states as well. Um, and there, some cat cats yeah, and coffee. <laughs> plenty of cats and coffee content, which <laughs> is amazing to see too. Uh, okay, so let's talk a little bit about like the race. Mm-hmm. Um, what were like the trails like in Chiang Mai, and how was racing like as part of a team? Yeah. Um, so the trails themselves were a combination of like dr- jungle, pretty much like dry jungle combined with like very moist jungle with, you know, exactly what you picture when you picture jungle trails, like big banana trees, big leaves coming over the trail, like moist water and little rocks and mud, all of, all of that. Um, but then also this combination of like uneven country roads that kind of have some like brick or cobblestone-esque kind of like winding jeep roads with that type of terrain that then goes out into like um, different farms so i would say the first we our loop was comprised roughly of like three loops so the first loop was a steep climb about i think 3500 feet or so in maybe like six miles Um, it was actually the same climb that the vertical race had done um the day or two prior so we did that and then um kind of like complete that loop. And then we go out on a loop that nobody had any information on because I think a lot of the people would come out there a week in advance or so, maybe two weeks in advance for their travel. And a lot of people weren't doing like mega runs at this point. So nobody knew what this further section of the course looked like just because it would have required a long run and nobody was doing long runs before the race. So this was like a roughly marathon section that was actually quite runnable. For the most part, it had a lot of like gradual climbs, but was runnable for nearly the entirety of it. And then at mile 40, you get hit with a 3,000 foot climb in four miles, I believe. Just sucked. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I I was going into it thinking that this was going to be the crux of the race. So anybody that had went out too hard, this is where like they would struggle later on. Um, turns out that really wasn't the case. Nobody really died much. But um, I think the crux of the race is actually a really runnable second loop that was kind of a marathon distance. But then the race, you hit your crew with nine miles to go. And it's mostly downhill, but with some very terrible slight uphills in the last descent, which I think for all future races, um, that's got to be my Achilles heel is a descent with ascending still in it. Just murdered me. (laughs) So that was roughly what the course profile looked like. Um, Really technical descending at times too, really rocky, um, just steep, loose dirt in the jungle, but then combined with like a lot of actually really runnable uphill stuff and some runnable downhills. So I think it was crucial to not blow your legs on all the runnable downhill um, and give yourself then some legs to be climbing that, especially that last final uphill on. It seemed like it was also just like super humid too. Oh yeah. So the temperature was 85, roughly 80, 85 degrees and just so humid. Like you were sweating. I mean, we started with about a mile on the road and we hit the trail from there to start climbing and just sweating beyond belief by the second we hit the trail. I'm like, we are 10 minutes into this race and I am drenched. So I think like this is tough because a lot of the heat training, um, and heat running that we do is, I mean, at least in the West is a dry heat. Um, and that's all I've really raced in. And it's actually pretty easy to control and mitigate if you're experienced in it. Um, but humidity definitely is a different challenge because, you know, you're not sweating as effectively, not cooling as effectively. And, you know, does ice and staying wet work the same way that it does, you know, when I ran Western States and especially in a race where we have less crew support, um, less ice accessible, less water accessible. How do you uh, moderate your effort throughout to make sure that you're taking, you're controlling all the controllables and taking care of yourself whenever you're not seeing your crew as often. So I think that was definitely a challenge that I felt like a lot of people were on a rather even playing field for because not a lot of us, especially if you looked at the US team, I believe, over 50% of the team was coming from Colorado, um, where, you know, they don't have humidity. So I think everybody was kind of in the same boat, at least for our U.S. team. Do you listen to uh, the Huberman Lab podcast? Or are you familiar with it? I'm familiar with it, yeah. Yeah, he's got like some really interesting episodes on like 
cold exposure and heat exposure and like how to train for that stuff. And I think it's like the best way to mitigate heat. I'm not sure about humidity. Maybe I'll Mm. submit a question to them. Uh, But it's like cooling your palms, apparently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, I think um, if you I think Tim Tollison did some of that at Western States this year. He had like ice baggies that he would like hold in his hands. Um, I should have thought about that this past week. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Definitely lots to think about. I uh, Something that was interesting to me was, you know, knowing that it was a human environment. I do sauna training when I'm training for something like Western States, but say you have access to a steam room, should you be getting in the steam room or is that just as effective as a sauna? Um, I heard from some people that sauna is still the most effective and you should do that for human environments just because you'll get the greatest adaptations. But yeah, just definitely interesting things to think about um, with such a like, dynamic environment out there. Did you enjoy the kind of like team aspect of it? I feel yeah. like I f- ultra running can be kind of lonely sometimes. Oh yeah, that was really cool. Um, and unfortunately, I didn't have like as much intersection with my teammates as the, out there as some of them did. Um, but I think, what was it? The first climb at the top, Mike was taking pictures. Um, I think after that aid station, our first aid station or something. And um I think he gave, oh no, actually I saw him afterward. So we actually came into the first aid station, which was probably about hour 15 or so into the race. And I think this is something I haven't talked about yet, but this is crucial to the race itself. We had three USATF volunteers as our crew for this race. Um, That's crazy. The 40K and the 80K were occurring at roughly the same time. Um, We had, how many? We had eight eight athletes in the 80k and we had 10 athletes in the 40k so that's 18 athletes and 40k was coming through that same aid station twice we are coming through that same aid station three times so this this crew was at the same aid station all day which thank god we were at the same aid station they were at the same aid station all day because they didn't have to move but that meant that they had 44 aid station stops total cumulative across all the athletes and these were all people that they have never crewed before and one of the volunteers had never crewed an ultra before. So, I mean, crew crewing is tough work, number one, but it's very specific and particular per athlete too. So getting all the things right for every athlete and making sure that, you know, everything's getting done and like they know whose stuff is whose and doing everything that you want them to do in as short a time as possible is really tricky. So the first time through, obviously we're only 75 minutes into a race. People are a lot tighter at that point than we would be, you know, eight hours into a race. Um, so the first four men in our race came through and I was for the women, then there was four of us and I was the fourth one to come through. And I think Brittany and Caitlin and Addie were all running roughly together and they were about a minute and a half in front of me. So as I came into the aid station for the first time, all three of them were leaving which meant that all three of them had to have just gotten crewed by these guys in a matter of a minute or two, all at the same time. Like how hectic that had to have been for them to have three three girls just roll through the same station and all needing different things from the crew all at once. So it's probably a good thing I wasn't in that group of three because then, I mean, maybe there's some time for things to settle down and they could take care of me then kind of just one-on-one, which was nice. But yeah, definitely a tricky dynamic. So that was probably one of the challenges I can imagine as like running as a team was for the crew themselves because there was only one crew. Um, and then as running as a team in general, it just, it lifts you up throughout the race. Like you are running for more than just yourself. And oftentimes like that was, that was the top priority. The top priority was never like my race and like me being a certain place or anything like that. It was, you know, how well can we do as a team? So I think, Addie and Brittany and Caitlin were all running roughly together for a large portion of the first 10 miles. Um, And then I passed Brittany around um, probably like 12 miles or so going into one of our major aid stations. And um, I think Caitlin and Addie had been working together for some time up ahead. And I crossed their path around 15 miles. And I think they said something like, oh, we thought we'd be seeing you soon. So it was nice to share some miles with them because I hadn't talked to anybody really all day long up to that point. So we chugged along. Um, and it was interesting to see because all of us have different strengths. Like, you know, Caitlin is just so strong. She had her trekking poles out on like the steep climbs. Like she's hauling up that. Brittany is a fast road runner and like just cruises on anything that's super runnable. So it's like, on any 
one of these given sections, somebody's kind of pulling another person along, which I think is just such a unique experience. And it forces you to kind of, you want to stick with your team as best you can. Um, so it forces you to challenge yourself a little bit more on the sections where you might get a little complacent. Well, I'm glad to hear your reputation as a hard closer uh, <laughs> is still, <laughs> still, still alive and well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, were you pretty happy with your performance overall, considering that like you didn't have a, like, you know, an ideal training block? Yeah, I am el- elated with it. Um, so I ended up 19th overall and our team was fifth um and i ended up being our top american woman finisher and i think just what stood out to me like i ran one of my best races this year and that was good enough for 19th place which is wild like it it was so it was so deep and it was so just competitive i think the spread from 10th place to me in 19th place was uh, 11 minutes or something like that. So I was just telling people after the race, there's no margin for error in a race like this. Like had I actually like our final descent, I was telling you about how there was some climbs in that descent and I was getting quite bonky on those sections. And it's like, I would have loved to close a little bit faster than I did like a minute or two. Cause that would have been maybe four or five spots, which is wild. Like, and I think I was expecting a lot more carnage, which I probably need to stop doing um, <laughs> because they're just, there just is not carnage anymore. Like p- women and men too. But like, I think in a race like this distance too, where it's nine ish hours, you can get away being risky. And like when you're dying, you're not dying as extraordinarily as you would in a hundred miler. So I think if this race was like three hours longer, sure, there would have been a little bit more carnage that I could have swept up a little bit, but you just, you need to start being risky and running like putting putting yourself in it a little bit more if you want to be competitive so yeah i had a i had a fantastic race that like didn't do make any major mistakes out there and like i finished fast i like moved up the field all day long but yeah it just wasn't quite enough to compete with the best of the best so i think i there are things i would do slightly different next time but yeah overall pleased and yeah just wild that you know having one of my best races is still only you know not roughly 20th so i I think the trail world champs is every other year right it's Mm. like biennial yes i that's what it's supposed to be yes and then this year into next year is just a little funky because of covid uh delays and whatnot because i think the next one is in australia it's gonna be in austria austria wow yeah Yeah. there you go i knew it (laughs) um but again it like a kind of like a smaller ish uh like yeah yeah and it's gonna be different next year so it's in innsbruck in austria in june um i think like june 10th ish so it's kind of it's gonna be another not ideal yeah it's gonna be interesting because like lavaredo is a few weeks later for the euros western states is a few weeks later for us um i'm just curious what kind of team it'll bring out so next year the qualifier for the adk team um is lake sonoma which is also interesting um because i don't think it's tough because what is the best representation uh, of this race that we just saw, right. you know, in Thailand? It's tough because the race isn't always that verdy by any means, but also like a race like Lake Sonoma that might cater to somebody that's very talented at running a fast 50 miler, fast rolling hilly 50 miler versus somebody that like is like very skilled at a mountain 50 miler. I think it's just entirely different skill sets so it'll be interesting to see how that team shakes out next year yeah cool well before i get you out of here i want to talk about uh the rest of your year um is that are you kind of just taking some r&r right now yeah that's the i don't know (laughs) so before yes that that is roughly the plan there's still um so before i got chosen for the adk team literally the a couple days prior I had signed up for quad dipsy, um, in San Francisco. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, so that is Thanksgiving weekend. And I told myself that if I felt fine coming out of world champs, I would maybe consider quad dipsy as my, my last hurrah. Um, but I'm just playing it day by day at this point. So I'm keeping it as a consideration, but if I start to not feel great, I definitely won't do that. So <laughs> Quad Dipsy is an experience. Like yeah. for for those that don't know, it's uh, it's on the same course as the normal Dipsy, uh, and as the name implies, it's four laps of the 
seven point, I think three mile trail that has like 2,200 feet. Um, oldest trail race in America. Uh, and it's essentially from downtown Mill Valley to Stinson Beach. So from uh, just below Mount Tam to the ocean, essentially. And what's great about the quad dipsy is that you get to see people on every lap. It's the coolest experience because <laughs> it's not only like an out and back, it's an out and back and out and back. Aww. So you get to interact with like, you know, the mid packers and the backpackers a few times. Uh, and it's just, it's a scene. It's like a small town race that like, has so much history and i've been trying to get leah to run it for quite some time now i had a friend message me yesterday she's like so i saw your instagram post and so that probably means you're not running quad dipsy and i was like well i said my friend's trying to convince me to run it so i was like i'll let you know what i plan on doing (laughs) yeah uh, i've been trying to run this race for like four years but because of covid and just my inability to be healthy (laughs) after october uh (laughs) <laughs> it hasn't lined up and I don't think it'll line up this year either, but I'll be out there. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll see if I can be convinced and hopefully my recovery keeps going well. And yeah, we'll see. <laughs> Do you take kind of like a, a dedicated like off season in the winter? Mm, even, nah, not usually. <laughs> I'll probably take like a month of like no structured, no structure to my training. Um, so that's what I've been telling myself too. It's like, well, like maybe December I can just do like enjoy the snow, do some skiing and, you know, no structure to my training. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. All right. Well, well I'm going to keep on making the case. <laughs> uh, yeah, you'll probably convince me. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, 28 miles and 10K avert. What's not to love? Yeah. Yeah. What could go wrong? Well, oh, and I haven't had poison oak since like oh, Western well. States. So I need to get back and have my, I got had it in April, May and June and like July this year. So it's been a while. Yeah, yeah, awesome. <laughs> Leah, thanks for uh, thanks for chatting with me. Yeah, this was fun. Thanks, Matt. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Leah for the conversation. Thanks to Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from everyone here at Blister, please take good care of yourself, keep moving forward, and we'll talk to you again next week.